Richard, Sicily, 2.0 where we cover all crime i'm as always your host the great white snark scotty j across from me is the lovely and twisted monica hi oh it's been a fun week for me folks big bosses have been down on the floor and they're not liking the way things are done so there's been some change-ups how many change-ups? Um, actually, we, we one account that we've been doing really isn't our account, so it's got to go back to the, the department that does it. And we share like, what do they tell me, three accounts with that department. So, like today, today was my last day working on a uh, Jefferson County, Colorado. Uh, which I get, which I got to uh, work on Monday because I screwed up. The placement of RFID tags. So I'm like, yeah, eight bo- eight boxes is better than like twenty five. Yeah. Oh, I've been listening to a, a new audio book at work. I, I need to get a copy of. I've been listening to Crime of the Century about Richard Speck. I have that in paperback. That's really good. Yeah, it, it is. I. Kindle too, so yeah, it actually. It really- well, I um, I asked my mom because you know she was around at that time down here, and I said, "Well, what do you remember here?" And and she goes, "Well, you know, he killed eight nurses and almost got nine, but the little um, Filipino girl crawled under the bed." And I was like, "Well, yeah, you know, she survived. She was able to ID him." I'm just now getting to the point where um, there. They got the name, they put it out on the put it out to the media, and he's he's close to getting captured. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I want to get a hold of this so I can like take notes so we can do a do a show on Richard Speck. Yeah, I have the um Life magazine. Oh I've nice. I've had that like a few years now. Right. I mean, I, I, I know a little bit of the case. I mean, I know Phil and I covered it, but you know, he's one of those names in Chicago that just kind of like Gacy. He just pops up occasionally and scares the bejesus out of people. Yep. I mean, the last well before his before his death in prison, I don't know if he died of natural causes or he got natural. the. Oh, it was natural. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was I was hoping for the uh, hot drip injection. No, I believe it was like day before his fiftieth birthday. Oh. But he had um, a videotape had surfaced where he was sitting in prison and he had a, um, he was trying to do a sex change in prison. Mm-hmm. And he's sitting there with a uh, big old floppy man boobs. Yeah, he was born the day before Pearl Harbor and he died the day on December 5th of 91. So yeah, day before his 50th. December December 5th, 1991? Yeah. Where and was he? was born December 6th, 1941. I do believe I was home from uh, A school. Yeah. They, they gave me a month off from A school before I had to report to Greece. So I was home. Trying to remember who I was with. Oh, I was with uh, a a girl that I had uh, I had proposed to. We were going to get married, but she ended it about two months after I went to Greece. Of course. Well, I just can't handle you being away. Well, you knew what I was doing when we got together. Yeah. So, okay. All right, folks. We are going. Oh, I, I tried looking into our reviews again. No one wrote a review, but they left us a star review. 
Yeah, one was one star, one was two stars. Yeah. So everyone out there, please please go to iTunes, Apple Podcast. Give us a review. Give us a good review. Tell us what your favorite sandwich is. Yep. Oh, just doing it for the fun. Yeah, right. So we, we are actually going to wrap up uh, David Crush today. Uh, we Today we are going to go. Today is it. This is the last David Crush episode. Unless we decide to do a uh, a retrospect. David Crush, how did we. How have we known thee? Let me count the ways. But uh, no, this is it. So, as we left off last time, the ATF was on their way out there in the horse trailers. And they were all set, ready to go. So they attempted to execute their search warrant on Sunday morning, February 28th, 1993. The local sheriff in audio tapes broadcast after the incident said he was not appraised of the raid. Despite being informed that the Branch Davidians knew a raid was coming, which, you know, thanks to the postman, the ATF commander ordered that it go ahead, even though their plan depended on reaching the compound without the Branch Davidians being armed and prepared. Well, we kind of failed there, buddy. While not standard procedure for the ATF, Agents had their blood type written on their arms or neck after leaving the staging area and before the raid because it was recommended by the military to facilitate speedy blood transfusions in the case of injury. That's a good idea. Honestly, if you're going into a raid, put put down what your blood type is. That way they can match you and get you patched up. Any advantage of surprise was lost, as we said last week, when a KWTX TV reporter had been tipped off about the raid and asked for directions from a U.S. Postal Service carrier, who was coincidentally Koresh's brother-in-law. Oops. Koresh then told undercover ATF agent Robert Rodriguez, played by John Leguizamo, that they knew the raid was imminent. Rodriguez had infiltrated the Davidians and was astonished to find that his cover had been blown. And they still, I mean, I think they still believe that Rodriguez was uh, immigration, not, not ATF, not anything else. The agent made an excuse and left the compound. When asked later what the branch Davidians had been doing when he left the compound, he replied, they're praying. Branch Davidian survivors have written that Koresh ordered select male followers to begin arming and taking up defensive positions while the women and children were told to take cover in their rooms. Koresh told them he would try to speak to the agents and what happened next would depend on the agents' intentions. The ATF arrived at 9.45 a.m. in a convoy of civilian vehicles containing uniformed personnel and SWAT-style tactical gear. Agents stated that they heard shots coming from within the compound, while Branch Davidian survivors claimed that the first shots came from the ATF agents outside. This is something I've always noticed in a situation like this. No one knows who fires the first, who fired the first shot, but someone just got a little trigger happy, and you know, probably it was someone walking up to the door or you know to their position, tripped over or something. As they're falling, squeeze the trigger, you know, it happens. A suggested reason may have been an accidental discharge of a weapon, possibly by an ATF agent, causing the ATF to respond with fire from automatic weapons. Other reports claim the first shots were fired by the ATF dog team sent to kill the dogs in the Branch Davidian Kennel. Three helicopters of the Army National Guard were used as an aerial distraction, and all took incoming fire. During the first shots, Koresh was wounded, shot in the hand, and the stomach. Within a minute of the raid start, Branch Davidian Wayne Martin called the emergency services, pleading for them to stop shooting. Martin asked for a ceasefire, and audio tapes record him saying, Here they come again, and 
That's them shooting. That's not us. First ATF casualty was an agent who had made it to the west side of the building before he was wounded. Agents quickly took cover and fired at the buildings while the helicopters began their diversion and swept in low over the complex, 350 feet away from the building. The Branch Davidians fired on the helicopters and hit them, although none of the crew members were injured. And in response, the pilots chose to pull away from the compound and the land. Why didn't they bring in, like, helicopters with weapons? Yeah, right. It should have just been regular. Uh, right. Well, I mean, they used regular helicopters. Uh-huh. You know, well, get- that, like, it should have been, like... Oh, like, yeah. I worded that wrong. It, yeah, they... I mean, helicopters without, you know, officers right. in, in there, but not with without guns. Right. You know, get a get a door gunner, you know, have them strafe, you know, as they're flying by, fires a few rounds down. But that could have been overkill on the government's part, too. Yes. On the east side of the compound, agents brought out two ladders and set them against the side of the building. They then climbed onto the roof to secure it to reach Koresh's room and the location where they believed the weapons were stored. On the west slope of the roof, three agents reached Koresh's window and were crouching beside it when they came under fire. That's one of the famous or yeah. infamous videos. Yeah. Oh, yeah. The guys crouched by the window, you know. Yeah. Mm. One agent was killed and another one was wounded. The third agent clambered over the peak of the roof and joined other agents attempting to enter the armory. The window was smashed, a flashbang stun grenade was thrown in, and the three agents entered the armory. When another tried to follow them, a hail of bullets penetrated the wall and wounded him, but he was able to reach a ladder and slide to safety. An agent fired fired his shotgun at Branch Davidians until he was hit in the head by return fire and killed. Inside the armory, the agents killed a Branch Davidian and discovered a cache of weapons, but subsequently came under heavy fire and two were wounded. As they escaped, the third agent lay down, covering fire, killing a Branch Davidian. As he made his escape, he hit his head on a wooden support beam and fell off the roof but survived. Oh, wow. An agent outside provided them with covering fire, but was shot by a Branch Davidian and killed instantly. Dozens of the ATF agents took cover, many behind the British Davidian vehicles, and exchanged fire with the inhabitants. The number of ATF wounded increased, and an agent was killed by gunfire from the compound as agents were firing at a British Davidian perched on top of the water tower. The exchange of fire continued, but 45 minutes into the raid, the gunfire began to slow down as Asians began to run low on ammunition. The shooting still continued on for a total of two hours. I've noticed that happens a lot in a in a, like a battle situation. Um, like I like uh, the Battle of Antietam. There was like three lulls in the con- in the combat because they were running low on ammunition. The first yeah, one was like. Well, right, and I mean, you know, the guys only packed enough what enough ammunition for a short time because that's what they were expecting, mm-hmm. and and I think that they expected fire back, but not like what they got. I mean, you can't go into a raid like that without expecting them to fire back. Yeah, true. And knowing going in, knowing that they have weapons there. Right. More so. Our weapons are better. Hold my beer. Sheriff Lieutenant Lynch of the McLennan County Sheriff Department contacted the ATF and negotiated a ceasefire. Sheriff Harwell states that in William Gazeski's documentary, Waco, The Rules of Engagement, that the ATF agents withdrew only after they were out of ammunition. ATF agent Chuck Hustmeyer later wrote that about 45 minutes into the shootout, the volume of gunfire finally started to slacken. We were running out of ammunition. 
The Davidians, however, had plenty. Mm-hmm. In all, four ATF agents, Steve Willis, Robert Williams, Todd McCann, and Conway Charles LeBleu, LeBleu sorry. Hello, darling. Had been killed during the firefight. Another 16 had been injured. After the ceasefire, the Branch Davidians allowed the ATF dead and wounded to be evacuated and held their fire during the ATF's retreat. It's been a long... Sorry, every time I hear Conway, I think of Conway Twitty. Okay. The five Branch Davidians killed in the raid were Winston Blake, Peter Gent, Peter Hipsman, Perry Jones, and J. Dean Wendell. Two were killed at the hands of the Branch Davidians after having been wounded. Their bodies were buried on the grounds. And nearly six hours after the 11.30 a.m. ceasefire, Michael Schroeder was shot dead by ATF agents who alleged he fired a pistol at agents as he attempted to re-enter the compound with Woodrow Kendrick and Norman Allison. Alan A. Stone's report states that the British civilians did not ambush the ATF and that they apparently did not maximize the kill of ATF agents, explaining that they were rather desperate religious fanatics expecting an apocalyptic ending in which they were destined to die defending their sacred ground and destined to achieve salvation. A 1999 federal report noted, the violent tendencies of dangerous cults can be classified into two general categories, defensive violence and offensive violence. Defensive violence is utilized by cults to defend a compound or enclave that was created specifically to eliminate most contact with the dominant culture. The 1993 clash in Waco, Texas at the Branch Davidian Complex is an illustration of such defensive violence. History has shown that groups that seek to withdraw from the dominant culture seldom act on their beliefs that the end time has come unless provoked. Yeah, I can, after doing enough shows and watching enough things, yeah, I can see that. You just leave them alone and you just leave them alone, honey, and, and they'll just go about their business. They won't bother you. Yeah, they're a little crazy, but, you know, they're out there in the heat. What, what they need is some fried chicken and some lemonade. Give them the good stuff. Give them the country time. Don't don't give them the flavor aid. That could do badly also. You're right. Give them a cookout. You know, some baked beans, some potato salad. Uh-huh. You know, some barbecue chicken. Burgers yeah. and dogs for the kids. Yeah, fun times. Right. Get bounce house, you know. Get Pogo to clown out there. He'll come down from Chicago for a special engagement. Uh-huh. Hey, kiddies. ATF agents established contact with Crush and others inside the compound after they withdrew. The FBI came in, took command soon after as a result of the deaths of federal agents placing Jeff Jamar, head of the Bureau's San Antonio field office, in charge of the siege command or in charge of the siege as site commander. FBI hostage rescue team was headed by HRT commander Richard Rogers, who had been previously criticized for his actions during the Ruby Ridge incident. I believe this is the one that uh, Michael Shannon plays in the um, in the series. Yeah, because yeah, oops, sorry. Yeah, because yeah, uh, yeah. I'm trying to the original, but yeah, there's right. a ridge too. As at Ruby Ridge, Rogers often overrode the site commander at Waco and mobilized both the blue and gold HR tactical teams to the same site, which ultimately created pressure to resolve the situation tactically due to a lack of HRT reserves. Oh. Okay, that's okay. Now I know who who they're talking about. Uh, he was the uh, the a hole who uh, blamed the uh, Ruby Ridge incident on the ATF. The the one who's always wanting to go in with more gun, more firepower. Oh uh, yeah, but I and I understand because looking it back up. 
this was um what did I say 90, 93. They they still had that that specter of Jonestown hanging over their head. Yeah, because it was only the was like two. yeah. So they they were really wanting to prevent this from being another uh, Jonestown incident. Yeah, it's like when you think about it, it's like. Seems Jonestown seems so long ago now, but yeah. Oh yeah, back then it was it was still fresh. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh, I have a oh wait, wrong person. Just just drink, just have a drink, children. Don't 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 worry about the pain; it'll go away soon. Just just drink up, children. At first. The Davidians had telephone contact with the local news media, and Crush gave phone interviews. As, as you're laying there bleeding, why, you want, do an interview. Get Barbara Walters in there, you know? You down, somebody. <clears throat> the FBI cut Davidian communication to the outside world, which is the smart thing to do. Eh, kind of, maybe, I don't know. Now, for the next 51 days, communication with those inside was by telephone by a group of 25 FBI negoti negotiators. The final Justi Justice Department report found that the negotiators criticized the tactical commanders for undercutting negotiations, which if you guys watched Waco and Waco the aftermath, it's pretty accurate. In the first few days, the FBI believed that they had made a breakthrough when they negotiated with Crush an agreement that the Branch Davidians would peacefully leave the compound in return for a message, recorded by Koresh, being broadcast on national radio. The broadcast was made, but Koresh then told the negotiators that uh, God told him to remain in the building and, you know, wait. David, this is God. Yeah, I want you to kick back and wait for a bit. Now, man, I'm listening to Skinner right now, but I'll get back to you. Now, despite this, soon afterwards, negotiators managed to facilitate the release of 19 children, ranging in age from five months to 12 years, without their parents. However, 98 people remained in the building. The children were then interviewed by the FBI and Texas Rangers. I bet one of them was named Walker. For some hours at a time. Allegedly, the children had been physically and sexually abused long before the standoff. This was the key justification offered by the FBI, both to then-President Bill Clinton and to Attorney General Janet Reno, for launching tear gas attacks to force the Davidians out of the compound. Now, during the siege, the FBI sent a video camera to the branch Davidians. In a videotape made by Crush's followers, Koresh introduced his children and his, we're going to put the air quotes around this, his wives, to the FBI negotiators, including several minors who claimed to have had baby fathers by Koresh. Koresh had fathered perhaps 14 of the children who stayed with him in the compound. And I was, I was just thinking about that, I don't know why, the other day. But if you notice, the kids who got released weren't technically Koresh's. They were everyone else's children. Like his kids with him, right? He kept his with him, and you know th those poor. Well, except the one that was, or the ones that over in Laverne. But yeah, yeah th th they, those they were already there, right? But those kids inside that compound, man. Those those are the ones that I feel sorry for. Mm -hmm. You know, th those little kids didn't ask to be put in that position. They had no right to be in that position. Koresh should have just let them go with the others, you know. But who understands the mind of a madman? Well, besides you and me. Yeah. I call him dad. Several Branch Davidians made statements in the video. One on day nine... Monday, March 8th, the Branch Davidians sent out the videotape to show the FBI there were no hostages, but everyone was staying inside of their own free will. This video also included a message from Koresh. 
The negotiator's log showed that when the tape was reviewed, there was concern that the tapes released to the media would gain sympathy for Crush and the Branch Davidians. Videos also showed the 23 children still inside the compound and child care professionals on the outside prepared to take care of those children as well as the previous 19 released. As the siege continued, Crush negotiated for more time, allegedly so that he could write religious documents he needed to complete before surrendering. His conversations, which were dense with biblical imagery, alienated the federal negotiators who treated the situation as a hostage crisis. Among themselves, the negotiation teams took to calling Crush's words Bible babble. On March 7th, the FBI began consulting with Bible scholars Philip Arnold and James Tabor, who studied a transcript of Crush's radio broadcast to try to understand Crush's theology. That week, Arnold and Tabor were guests on talk radio programs on Dallas radio stations, KRLB and KGBS. Hey, this is W... Oh, sorry. God, I'm so used to doing it in a Chicago radio. I keep forgetting that, like, on our side of the Mississippi, all radio stations, all broadcast stations are W. Yeah. And on the West Coast, it's all K. Welcome to KRLB Talk Radio. Today we're going to talk about the seven signs of the apocalypse or the seven deadly sins. Rush heard the programs on a battery-powered radio. On March 16th, he asked the FBI for permission to discuss the Bible with Arnold directly. And the FBI did not discuss. Well, yeah. On April 1st, Arnold and Tabor were interviewed by radio talk show host Ron Engelman on KGBS to discuss the situation at Mount Carmel Center. Tabor said that the Apostle Paul read much of the New Testament from prison and in a similar manner, would reach to a wider audience if he surrendered peacefully, even if it meant going to prison. On April 4th, a tape recording of this broadcast was delivered to David Koresh by Dick DeGarren, Koresh's lawyer. According to David Thibodeau, an eyewitness inside the compound, Koresh exhibited a favorable response upon hearing the tape. As the siege wore on, two factions developed within the FBI, one believing negotiation to be the answer and the other force. Increasingly, aggressive techniques were used to try to force the Branch Davidians out. For instance, sleep deprivation of the inhabitants through all-night broadcasts of recordings of jet planes, pop music, Buddhist chanting, and the screams of rabbits being slaughtered. Outside the compound, nine Bradley fighting vehicles carrying M651 CS tear gas grenades and fired rounds and five M728 combat engineer vehicles obtained from the U.S. Army began patrolling. The armored vehicles were used to destroy perimeter fencing and outbuildings and crush cars belonging to the Branch Davidians. Armored vehicles repeatedly drove over the grave of Branch Davidian Peter Gents, despite protests by the Branch Davidians and the negotiators. Sunday, 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 watch the Abrams tank crush cars at the Coliseum. Tickets are only $5. Two of the three water storage tanks on the roof of the main building had been damaged during the initial ATF raid. Eventually, the FBI cut all power and water to the compound, forcing those inside to survive on rainwater and stockpiled military MRE rations. Criticism was later leveled by Schneider's attorney, Jack Zimmerman, at the tactic of using sleep and peace disrupting sound against the Branch Davidians. The point was this. They were trying to have sleep disturbance, and they were trying to take someone that they viewed as unstable to start with, and they were trying to drive him crazy. And then they got mad because he does something that they think is irrational. You know, I mean, boot camp, yeah, we kind of, I wouldn't say we were sleep deprived, because, I mean, we went to bed probably around nine about nine woke up at five but uh, but I get if it would have been me there they would have found me sleeping in a corner somewhere because 
I grew up in a loud house, so, you know, noise like that would not have bothered me. <clears throat> now, despite the increasingly aggressive tactics, Crush ordered a group of followers to leave. Eleven people left and were arrested as material witnesses, with one person charged with conspiracy to murder. The children's willingness to stay with Crush disturbed the negotiators, who were unprepared to work around the Branch Davidians' religious zeal. However, as the siege went on, the children were aware that an earlier group of children who had left with some women were immediately separated and the women arrested. During the siege, several scholars who studied apocalyptic, apocalypticism in religious groups attempted to persuade the FBI that the siege tactics being used by the government agents would only reinforce the impression within the Branch Davidians that they were part of a biblical end-of-times confrontation that had cosmic significance. And I will say this again. Duh. This would likely increase the chances of a violent and deadly outcome. Duh. The religious scholars pointed out that the beliefs of the group may have appeared to be extreme, but to the Branch Davidians, their religious beliefs were deeply meaningful and they were willing to die for them. Koresh's discussions with the negotiating team began increasingly difficult. He proclaimed that he was the second coming of Christ, uh, no, that's my father, and had been commanded by his father in heaven to remain in the compound. From April 5th until April 13th, Koresh refused to speak to the FBI, citing observance of the Passover holiday. FBI planners, growing increasingly impatient, considered using snipers to kill Koresh and possibly other key Branch Davidians. The FBI voiced concern that the Branch Davidians might commit mass suicide, as had happened in the 1978 Jim Jones-Jonestown complex. Koresh had repeatedly denied any plans for mass suicide when confronted by negotiators during the standoff and people leaving the compound had not seen any such preparation. On April 14th, David released a letter to his lawyer, Dick Dur Durgan, that's, I'm sticking to that, that would prove to be his last communication with the outside world. In it, he claimed to be writing down an interpretation of the seven seals of the book of Revelation, promising to exit the compound as soon as it was completed. I want the people of this generation to be saved. I am working night and day to complete my final work on the writing out of these seals. I thank my father. He has finally granted me the chance to do this. It will bring new light and hope to many, and they will not have to deal with me, the person. I will demand the first manuscript of the seals be given to you. Many scholars and religious leaders will wish to have copies for examination. I will keep a copy with me. As soon as I can see that people like Jim Tabor and Phil Arnold have a copy, I will come out and then you can do your thing with this beast. I got a joke prepared for that one, but I'm not going to do it. This letter sparked immediate disagreement within the FBI. While some saw it as a breakthrough, others ridiculed it suspecting that it was it to be a delay tactic designed to buy crush time to prepare for a violent confrontation. The FBI consulted psychologist Murray Mirren of Syracuse University to understand Crush's mental state. After examining this and four other letters by Crush, Myron or Mirren wrote on in an April 15th report that Crush exhibited all the hallmarks of rampant, morbidly violent paranoia, including, I do not believe there is in these writings any better, or at least certain, hope of an early end to the siege. Newly appointed U.S. Attorney General Janarino approved recommendations by the FBI hostage rescue team to mount an assault after being told that conditions were deteriorating and that children were being abused inside the compound. Reno made the FBI's case to President Clinton. 
Recalling the April 19, 1985, the Covenant, the Sword, and the Arm of the Lord siege in Arkansas, which was ended without loss of life by a blockade without a deadline, President Clinton suggested similar tactics against the Branch Davidians. Reno countered that the FBI hostage rescue team was tired of waiting, that the standoff was costing a million dollars per week, that the Branch Davidians could hold out longer than the CSA, and that the chances of child sexual abuse and mass suicide were imminent. Clinton later recounted, Finally, I told her that if she thought it was the right thing to do, she could go ahead. Over the next several months, Reno's reason for approving the final tear gas attack varied from her initial claim that the FBI hostage rescue team had told her that Koresh was sexually abusing children and beating babies, which the FBI hostage rescue team later denied evidence of child abuse during the standoff, to her claim that Linda Thompson's unorganized militia of the United States was on the way to Waco, either to help Koresh or to attack him. The assault took place on April 19, 1993. Because the Branch Davidians were heavily armed, the FBI hostage rescue team's arms included 50 caliber rifles and armored combat engineering vehicles. The CEVs used explosives to punch holes in the walls of buildings of the compound so they could pump in CS gas or tear gas and try to force the Branch Davidians out without harming them. The stated plan called for increasing amounts of gas to be pumped in over two days to increase pressure. Officially, no armed assault was to be made. Loudspeakers were to be used to tell the Branch Davidians that there would be no armed assault and to ask them not to fire on the vehicles. According to the FBI, the hostage rescue team agents had been permitted to return any incoming fire, but no shots were fired by federal agents on April 19th. When several Branch Davidians opened fire, the FBI hostage rescue team's response was only to increase the amount of gas being used. The FBI hostage team delivered 40mm fired brand CS gas rounds via M79 grenade launchers. Barely early in the morning, the rescue team fired two military M6551 CS gas rounds at the Branch Davidian construction site. Around mid-morning, the team began to run low on 40mm fired CS rounds and asked Texas Ranger Captain David Burns for tear gas rounds. The tear gas rounds procured from Company F in Waco turned out to be unusable pyrotechnic and were returned to the Company F office afterward. 40mm munitions recovered by the Texas Rangers at Waco included dozens of plastic fired model SGA-400 liquid CS rounds, two metal M65-1E1 military pyrotechnic tear gas rounds, two metal Nyko pyrotechnic sound and flash grenades, and parachute illumination flares. After more than six hours, no branch civilians had left the building, sheltering instead in an underground concrete block room known as the bunker within the building are using gas masks. If that's the same gas, uh, tear gas that they used in boot camp, oh god, that shit was that that stuff was rough. I had to go through a, a gas training in boot camp, and they put us in the in in this big metal room, which they also used for our fire training, and we we lined up, and for some. I probably do the lack of sleep, but I thought that, you know, I had this flash in my head, like, this is what the gas chambers felt like at Auschwitz. So what they had to do or have us do was they bust open a couple couple little small capsules in the room. The gas filled up. We had to take off our gas mask, say our name, rate, and serial number, and we could exit. Well, when you had a long name like Klonowski, nah. Yeah, they're the ones that like named Smith, right? Or Jones. Like, yeah. Right. And I was in the front row too. And we I think we were the third group in, so there was like three two other groups gas still hanging in the air. Because they didn't ventilate this mm-hmm. in between groups. Now when you yeah. come out into actual the oxygen, 
your head feels like it's on fire and you've got a river of snot pouring out of your nose. And oh, it's Let's an, go for it, allergies. Oh, yeah. And especially I was in Florida in August when, uh, you know, humidity is like 85% at five in the morning. Uh-huh. Oh, that, that was just nasty. You got guys over just hacking and coughing and wheeze. Oh, they they gave us time to recuperate before they let us, you know, line up and go back. I don't know what, what else we have, but that, that was rough. I never want to do that again. If I'm ever in a situation where I hear we're firing tear gas, I'm no, I'm coming out. Yeah. No. I've been through this once before. Ain't going through it again, boss. At around noon, three fires broke out almost simultaneously in different parts of the building and spread quickly. Footage of the blaze was broadcast live by television crews. I remember watching it. The government maintains the fires were deliberately started by the Branch Davidians. Some survivors and other experts maintained that the fires were accidentally or deliberately started by the assault possibly by the types of pyrotechnic rounds used by the FBI. Well, that sounds like um, the same type of rounds that they used with um, uh, Patty Hearst and the the, the Symbionese. Because the tear gas that they fired into that house was highly flammable and well, they all got burned to a crisp, Bob. Only nine people left the building during the fire. The remaining Branch Davidians, including the children, were either buried alive by rubble, suffocated, or shot. Many were killed by smoke or carbon monoxide inhalation and other causes as fire engulfed the building. According to the FBI, Steve Schneider, Crush's top aide, shot and killed Crush and then himself. In all, 76 people died. A large concentration of bodies, weapons, and ammunition was found in the bunker storage room. The Texas Rangers arson investigator reported a report assumes that many of the occupants were either denied escape from within or refused to leave until escape was not an option. It also mentions that the structural debris from the breaching operations on the west end of the building could have blocked a possible escape route through the tunnel system. An independent investigation by two experts from the University of Maryland's Department of Fire Protection Engineering concluded that compound residents had sufficient time to escape the fire if they had so desired. Autopsies of the dead revealed that some of the women and children found beneath a fallen concrete wall of a storage room died of skull injuries. The U.S. Department of Justice report indicated that only one body had traces of benzene, one of the com- components of the solvent-dispersed CS gas, but that the gas insertion had finished nearly one hour before the fire started and that it was enough time for solvents to, to dissipate from the bodies of the Branch Davidians that had inhaled the tear gas. <laughs> Autopsy records also indicate that at least 20 Branch Davidians were shot, including Koresh, as well as, as well as five children under the age of 14. Three-year-old Dalen Gent was stabbed in the chest. The medical examiner who performed the autopsies believed these deaths were mercy killings by the Branch Davidians trapped in the fire with no escape. The expert retained by the U.S. Office of Special Counsel concluded that many of the gunshot wounds support self-destruction by either overt suicide, consensual execution, which is suicide by proxy, or less likely, forced execution. So as you all know, um, it, those that went on trial... Uh, there's one lady, uh, I'm trying to remember her name. I can see her clearly. She's in all the um, Waco documentaries that are on like 
um, Netflix and everything. <laughs> to this day, she will tell you, I should have died in there with them. It was my belief that I should have died in there with them. But she was released because when the, her three kids went out, when they showed the video of the kids, um, her youngest son was there alone. His brother and sister were gone. And she called and was like, where's his siblings? And, you know, he, their father took custody of them. He didn't have custody over the, the third one. So she left because, you know, I want my baby. And then they're like, hi, do you like wearing bracelets? Well, we have these nice steel bracelets to put on you right now. And like, yep. <laughs> you know, they go click, click. And, you know, you, you get to do this wonderful thing with them that we call the perp walk. Mm -hmm. Smile for the cameras. Oh, that if, if I was ever in a situation like that, I am definitely smiling for the cameras. Yeah, that sounds about right. <laughs> I, I would yell free James Brown, although he's dead. Yeah. <laughs> Free James Brown. He's mm -hmm. dead, fool. Free James Brown. Yeah. Free James Brown. <laughs> okay, right. Anyone got some good jambalaya recipes? I'm going to prison. Anyone know how to make toilet Merlot? I do remember one time um, Phil and I went up to uh, the Taste of Chicago to see a free Billy Idol concert. And there was a Black Lives Matter protest going on. He actually had the nerve to go up to one of the Chicago cops and say, uh, you know, would they arrest him if he started a fight with them? And the cop kind of said, I'll let you get a few throws in before I do something. Stay classy, Chicago. Uh -huh. Yeah. And then he was yell yelling uh, fried chicken batter. That's Phil. Survive that trip. You know, I put up with a lot with him, but it was a free Billy Idol concert, and I wanted to hear Cradle of Love, and he never played it. Yeah. But I did yeah. get to hear some good well, songs. Like when I so. went to didn't see Mr. Jones. I was so upset. Although, I mean, Billy Idol did have Steve Stevens still playing with him from the 80s. And Steve Stevens kind of looks like your 60-year-old uh, your aunt who's trying to still be hip. Mm -hmm. I was looking at him on the big screens going, dude, just give it up. D dude, you look like you should be selling knickknacks in, you know, Nantucket. All right? Just, you know, stop. All right, that's going to wrap up um, David Crush and the Branch Davidians. We hope you like the show. In the longest run. So far, to date. Yeah. To, to date. I'm sure there'll be another one, but th this was, there was so much in this one that you know, there, was, there was no way that I could I could do this in three. Yes, that's there's like other ones and you know they should be longer and it's like right. two or one it's like yeah you need more time right but then you know once I started reading Jeff Gwynn's book and he really went into the background on the Branch Davidians and everything I'm like whoa this is stuff that I didn't know yeah and now I'm looking to get a, a looking I listened to the book on um Cyrus Teed, and I was listening to that at work one day, and I'm going, we got to cover this guy because this is some, I mean, we, we gave you guys a brief overview of his life and everything, but actually going into it is like, no, we, and one, one thing that, um, you know, the Cyrus Teed's group had wrote some books and it's one thing that um, was brought up in Jeff Gwynn's book, and I didn't put it into the notes or everything. I wanted to wait till the end. 
they it wasn't they believed that the the Waco Public Library had some of his writings in their in their library. So it's not that far of a stretch for for Vernon Howell there to read these tracks, read these books and decide, okay, well, this guy called himself, you know, called himself to crash and everything. I can too. Probably where he got the idea from. You know, it's a strong argument. I can see it. But it sounds a lot better if you say, well, I went to Israel and I sat on the mountain and, you know. Oh, of course, yeah. Yeah, and, and I know to follow some guys as I went to the library down the street. <laughs> right. I'm sorry if I ever became a cult leader, I'm probably going to be the honest cult leader there is. You know, <laughs> you know, I'm not making this up, guys. I, I just went down to the library and read it in a book. Yeah, it sounded good. Yeah. Oh well, I'm passing a law now that says I can have sex with all your women. I, I, yeah, I know. It, it just, it, I'm not going to say God told me. It, it, I just want to do it. I'm sorry. It's part of the whole cult, right? It's it's part of the you know, it's it's part of the uh, the cult leader gift pack, you know, the the starter kit. Yep. I mean, you guys can protest all you want, yada yada. I'm the leader; I get to do it. So, um, let's go, sweet cheeks. <laughs> I would I would be the most honest cult leader. Right. The FBI is like, you know, we're used to dealing with black jobs that say this. He's uh-huh. he's pretty honest about it. Yeah. We're firing tear gas. I'm coming out. <laughs> You'd be the first one, right? <laughs> yeah. You would see me king, yeah. kicking people out of the way to escape. Yeah. Right. Cult expanded, right? Everybody go home. <laughs> Cult leader elbow drops man in wheelchair to escape. Uh-huh. Gives a macho man, ooh yeah, when he's done. <laughs> Seriously, I, I I've been through gas training and boot camp. There, if anyone who's ever been through it, they'll tell you the same thing. This is some nasty stuff. You don't want to do it. So that's why, if I'm ever in a cult or a cult leader, and they say they're fire and tear gas, that we're done. We're we're coming out peacefully. I'm waving a white flag. Here we go. Mm-hmm. Oh, metal bracelets. I like these. Click, click. All right. If you like that, please, guys, go to give us some reviews on i on Apple. I know. I sound like you know. I'm I'm working the uh, MDA telethon here. I should come up with a. So we're doing this with the sound too. It's hard to do with the sound with the Zoom. Right. Like issue. Well, and not. I mean, I should. I should have like a Jerry Lewis bit to do here at the end. Please give us yeah, a review. That should be for, worth something. <laughs> for for every review you give, money will be donated to MDA to help these children walk. Flying to the people fund. You're right. But uh no, uh next week we'll have something new for you. So for Kill's Cults and Nut Jobs, I'm Scotty J. Say good night, Monica. Good night, Monica.